a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. You know, the purpose of this program is not to tell you what to think, but it is to encourage you to think as clearly and independently as possible. After all, truth is not something handed to you by authority. No, it's something we have to go after ourselves. This is why it's so important that we don't allow our thinking to become hyper-focused on who or what we're against, but rather to, uh, to cultivate an attitude where we're more certain of who we are individually and what we stand for. And if that sounds like something that, uh, that you can relate to, pull up a chair, come find courage and camaraderie among your fellow wrong thinkers, and uh, thank you so much for being part of our growing audience. Our program is brought to you by great sponsors like Monticello College, Life Saving Food, also uh, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, HSLAmmo.com, Sewing and Quilting Center, as well as Govern Your Income. You can check them out in the show notes, which you'll find at the Brian Hyde Show. So I have to start with something here that just, what a weird way to start the week. And when I say weird, I mean we're in the uh, executive branch using genocidal language against the outgroup stage of our growing biomedical security state. I don't know if you saw this. Uh, This was uh, a release from uh, whitehouse.gov. Just a quick quote here from their press release over the weekend. We are intent on not letting Omicron disrupt work and school for the vaccinated. You've done the right thing, and we will get through this. For the unvaccinated, you're looking at a winter of severe illness and death for yourselves, your families, and the hospitals you may soon overwhelm. Wow. (laughs) What a uniter, huh? (laughs) Holy cow. Now, and the funny thing is, I guess uh, the, the president is supposed to make an announcement on Tuesday, a very urgent announcement about COVID. If it's that urgent, why isn't he making it right now? I mean, if it's really to the point where we're, we're using genocidal language to warn the unvaccinated. You know, it, my point here is not that everybody who's vaccinated, you know, is part of this and the unvaccinated or, you know, this, this poor persecuted group. I just had a wonderful conversation with uh, an extended family member over the weekend. Um, she's fully vaccinated, definitely stands for the idea that, you know, people ought to do it. Um, And asked me about, you know, well, what's, you know, what's your take on this? I don't think I ever told her my vaccination status, but um, I I definitely said, I just have a real problem with the idea that that someone would want to force me. And we had a really wonderful conversation. That's my point is, you know, normal people can actually not see eye to eye on things and it's okay. But for some reason, when you get people in power involved, I don't know. The, you know, that I'm still just looking at that tweet and, and going, what on earth was was whoever wrote this for the White House? I don't for a minute believe this is this is Biden saying this himself, but his handlers for the unvaccinated. You're looking at a winter of severe illness and death. That's uh, that's pretty strong stuff. So I'm not going to spend the whole show talking about Omicron, but I do want to delve into some of the, the bigger issues here. And actually, let's let's take a little side street here. We've all heard the words for of uh, liberty and justice for all, right? We recited them, you know, as kids. 
how many people actually stop to think about what those words mean? I've got a great piece here from Jeffrey Tucker from the Brownstone Institute asking, what happened to liberty and justice for all? And why should it matter? He says, the Pledge of Allegiance when I was a kid was just a series of sounds we would make to start the school day. Look at the flag on the wall, hand over heart, say words we do not understand. Now he says, later, researching this thing, I concluded that the pledge originated as mere prattle to instill patriotism during the Spanish-American War and also to bully new immigrants into giving up native loyalties. So he says, I would say the pledges, but not with enthusiasm. But he says, last night, I joined others in saying the pledge at an event. And he says, I actually choked up at one point. Why? It was these words, liberty and justice for all. Now, he says, every word of that matters. Presumably, liberty means you can go places, do things, say stuff, associate as you want, worship as you choose, work, open a business, live your dreams unimpeded by arbitrary authority, all of which has been massively compromised during the pandemic due to egregious government policies backed by mass panic. We had to give up our liberty to fight a virus, they said, and yet here we are, surrounded by ill health, broken lives, shattered childhoods, wrecked communities, and the virus just keeps on keeping on. Now he says the word all matters here too. All. Not just people who are vaccinated against a virus from which the vast majority of people face no severe threat. All includes all groups. We don't have biological tests for whether and to what extent people have liberty and experience justice. We certainly would never exclude anyone from public life by force for failing to comply with an edict from a bureaucracy that was never approved by any legislature and which fails in a court of law. And yet here we are. Now, Jeffrey Tucker says, I've spent the last several days in New York City. It seems like the crisis never goes away. It began on March 12th of 2020. Millions fled the lockdowns. The situation actually seems worse today. Every public building, museum, diner, theater, bar, restaurant, library has a sign barring the unvaccinated. You walk in and it's the first thing that happens. They check your papers. Now, he says, like many New Yorkers, I avoided this as best I could, but I briefly made a mistake thinking that, thinking that New York was still an open, happy, enterprising city. I opened the door of a small bar as a normal person would. The man demanded my papers. I shuffled around, flashed a passport and card. Please don't ask me about my vac status. I object to sharing it. I was let in among the clean, while the unclean had to shuffle around in the cold and eat from the trucks of food vendors. Now, he says the experience was utterly degrading and un-American. In fact, he says it shocked me how badly it feels. It's grotesque. On Twitter, people say, what's the big deal? You have to show identification to drink, right? But this is about age. And age doesn't discriminate. This new proof is whether you have accepted the government's shot. It's a biological pass that heavily segregates. And he says this, there's a reason this has never been a commercial norm. It's in no one's interest. It's utterly wicked and un-American. Sure, anyone can get a fake and millions do. They use them, but not everyone is willing to lie. Some people would prefer to live a life of integrity. Government's making that very hard to do. Now, he includes a chart, and he says, here, have a look at the data on vaccinations. He says, I'm assuming that at least half these people were forced into vaccination 
under the threat of losing their jobs. Others have just fled the city altogether. But he says, here's where it stands now. See who's being excluded. And it's a table that shows data on the percentage of New York City residents vaccinated by age, I'm sorry, age, race, ethnicity, and sex. I'll let you click on the article to look at it for yourself. But something that Jeffrey Tucker picks up on is he says, it's striking that there are more in the 18 to 24 group than the 75 and older group who've gotten the jab, despite the thousandfold difference in risk from COVID. He says this signifies the disastrous public health messaging that has taken place throughout this pandemic. People even now have no clue who's at risk, even though we've known that since February of 2020. But have a look at ethnicity. Only half of blacks are vaccinated. Half of blacks in the city are simply barred from restaurants, movies, and so on. That's astonishing. That's infuriating. Who cares? Well, he says, I'm not even sure. How is this even possible? How is this even happening? It's a moral outrage. Every establishment objects, but they go along lest they be shut down. Just as a quick aside, I don't know if you saw this over the weekend, but NYPD was arresting people who were trying to sit in restaurants without showing the proper vaccination status, you know, their, their proper paperwork. Okay, it's not just a matter of, oh, you people are overreacting. No, it's, it's happening. This is, this is how things are right now. Not just a figment of somebody's imagination. The great civic message of the summer of 2020, says Jeffrey Tucker, was Black Lives Matter. But I guess the message didn't stick. The signs still appear on lawns in posh Massachusetts neighborhoods, but these people can't be bothered to notice what's taking place in the state next door. And what's more, he says, none of this makes any epidemiological sense. The vaccinated still get COVID and still spread COVID. Serious studies have shown that the threat to the vaccinated is not in any way intensified by the presence of the unvaccinated. Many, if not most of whom, possess more robust and lasting natural immunities. And again, we've known this for longer than a year. Why all of these policies based on bad science, bad economics, bad sociology, discrimination, and outright lies? How is this allowed to go on? Now, you may be shrugging your shoulders and saying, well, I'm just glad I don't live in New York. It's not going to bother me. Look, if it can take a toehold there, it could come to a neighborhood near you. we got to pay attention to this. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. You know, if you're one of the thousands of people who are relocating to the Intermountain West, I don't have to tell you it's the hottest real estate market most of us have ever seen. And what that means is when you find the home of your dreams, that financing better be squared away right now, which is why I'm trying to recommend to you the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Heather has decades of experience in the lending industry. She clearly understands the ins and outs of what it takes to make your loan happen, both for the lender and for the borrower. And she's on your side when time is of the essence. So from VA loans to traditional loans to reverse mortgages, please Count on the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage to get you the loan you need at the best rates possible. You can call 435-703-4522. If you're in St. George, Utah, 
Go by 619 South Bluff Street. Heather's NMLS ID is 715-386. And Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. So I'm sharing this article here from Jeffrey Tucker from the Brownstone Institute, which, you know, I'm not telling you you have to believe every word they say, but Jeffrey Tucker has been one of the more credible sources of information and I think one of the more principled commentators Ever since the beginning of this pandemic, he was a he was a pretty good guy to turn to on other subjects before that. But uh, when it came to learning about immunology, when it came to learning about how viruses spread and and how pandemics have been handled in the past hundred years, he actually did the research. He actually sat down and and learned what he needed to learn to get a basic understanding. Now, some people say, well, where's his medical degree or why isn't he, you know, in Dr. Fauci's shoes and. I guess it's it's actually a good thing that he isn't because Dr. Fauci is a bureaucrat and is probably more concerned with power based on uh, the weird uh, insights that he offers on his TV interviews, which, oh, no, masks are nothing that you need to worry about to better wear two of them. I don't know who can trust Dr. Fauci. I don't trust anybody right now who's working within the bureaucracy. Too much active suppression of reasonable questions that have come up alternatives to uh, to the get the jab and be done with it mindset. But when you ask yourself, what, what exactly has happened here? I like how Jeffrey Tucker goes back to what's really at stake here, and it's not just about avoiding a virus. It's about whatever happened to liberty and justice for all. Jeffrey Tucker says, look, look, what's more, none of this makes any epidemiological sense. The vaccinated get COVID and they spread COVID. How is this allowed to go on? More than 25,000 restaurants and bars in Manhattan already have gone out of business. The ones remaining are attracting fewer than half the customers they once did. Vast people have fled the city, so it's very difficult to find and attract workers. Workers can name their price these days. Vastly increasing costs. Ingredients are hard to come by. The port clogs are hopeless and high-end restaurants are having to charter their own flights to and from many places in the world just to maintain their menus. Meanwhile, as the city plunges deeper into crisis, prices are soaring everywhere for everything, profoundly harming all venues from bars to restaurants to transportation to hotels. So if you can possibly avoid the place, meaning New York City, for now, he says, I'd strongly suggest that you do so. Many residents now regret not having left a year and a half ago. And as for crime, well, he says it's out of control. There's so much of it, it's not even reported. A bar owner on the Upper East Side told me she that he witnessed a thief grab a woman's purse in front of his place. She wouldn't let go. He dragged her down the street, screaming, and then turned the corner. She finally let go, scraped up and bleeding. People stood by in shock and then went on with their lives because such scenes are completely normal. So what are the cops doing? Well, they're busy enforcing vaccine mandates. No one can go anywhere inside this city without flashing proof of vaccination. The cops themselves will find any business $5,000 for letting even one person in without a card, real or fake. Sometimes the cops even circle the restaurants and demand them of customers. Enjoy your dining experience, everyone. Jeffrey Tucker says during the pandemic and the closures, many restaurants set up outside dining basically building another version of indoors, outdoors. It was very expensive to do, and the results were sometimes ridiculous. But the saving grace here is that the city didn't charge the restaurants for the extra space, given the emergency. 
Well, that didn't last long. Now the city's going shop to shop and assessing fees on outdoor dining areas. And these fees can be fifty to $100,000, even more than it costs to put them up. And remember, this is happening at a time when many of these establishments are barely surviving. Their customer base has collapsed, labor is expensive, food and drink are ever more difficult to come by. He says the whole place has a feeling of demoralization. Many people who refuse the vaccination and refuse the fakes just sit at home and order food in. They can't go to the movies, shows, bars, or restaurants. Yes, there are plenty of speakeasies, but they take enormous risks. He says nothing seems quite real. And the mayor who did this to the city by executive edit is out of office January 1st, 2022. He's deeply unpopular, hated, and he seems not to care. He's demanding that all workers in New York City get vaccinated, even though this would exclude half of the minority populations from earning a living. He's literally willing for people to starve rather than allow for natural immunity. He's roping in the children in his scheme, too. Now he's talking about running for governor. What a joke. The new mayor may or may not roll back this insanity. Everyone's waiting to see. Meanwhile, cases are going through the roof in the city. By some measures, cases are higher than they ever have been, even as the deaths are not yet rising. Jeffrey Tucker says New York City was the absolute worst in stringency from March 2020 onward. And the only thing they have to show for it is wreckage. Instead of noting the astonishing failure of forced masking and venue closures and mass vaccination mandates, the mayor's doubling down during his last days of possessing the power to wreck the lives of millions in what was only recently the world's greatest city. Liberty and justice for all. Jeffrey Tucker says, that's a good idea. New York City should try it. Maybe it, too, would experience a Florida-like boom in business and immigration instead of recession and exodus. If this keeps up, the only thing, the only moving thing in the city will be the newest variant. I have a link to this in the show notes, which you can access at thebrianhideshow.com. Look, I know for some people this seems far removed from your life. This is ah, it's really nothing that concerns me. But just keep in mind that uh, people in positions of power, the, the people and the systems that are determined to rule your world, for some reason, this is their fixation. Look, if they could show, hey, we have seen this marked decrease in the spread of the virus. We've noticed that people who have uh, taken the vaccination seem to be free from symptoms or they've been protected against even getting it in the first place. That would be pretty compelling evidence for them to offer as to a reason as reasons for why you and I should consider, you know, dropping our objections and getting the jab. But they can't. And now the people who were fully vaccinated have found themselves uh, not considered fully vaccinated because they have to have the booster or maybe they need a couple of boosters and maybe we need a booster for every single variant that comes along. I don't know, to me it seems like if it really was such a great solution, we'd be able to see that for ourselves. But instead, we're seeing this intense doubling down on coercion and, and insistence that everybody has to do this. Everybody. Somebody had posted a picture on Twitter earlier today of uh, newspapers in the UK. And it, the, every newspaper was enclosed in, in a, a flyer of some sort. And the flyer just said, get boosted. Your paper is inside this. 
what on earth is happening that the news media, which used to be, or at least purported to be, you know, guardians of what was going on and would call out misbehavior or at least tell all the sides of a story, when did they become the enablers of this kind of heavy-handedness? I don't know. That's, that's probably a question for another day, but people who go on about, well, you know, I trust the science, Brian. <laughs> that's, that's what I trust. No, you, you trust the television. Because it's telling you this is what you're supposed to trust. I'm going to need something a little bit more before I start surrendering my liberties. Sorry about that. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. So I just want to remind you that uh, one of my sponsors, LifesavingFood.com, has a special for my listeners through Christmas Eve. You've got about a week to jump on this. Now we're talking food storage. For some people, it's going to be like, ooh, tell me more. Okay, here's what you need to know. When you order through LifesavingFood.com, use the coupon code HYDE, that's my last name, H-Y-D-E, yes, just like Dr. Jekyll and Mr., use that coupon code at checkout, you will get a 30% discount on your order. I didn't stutter. 30% discount. Also, free shipping and no sales tax. I mean, I don't know I don't know how much stronger an incentive I can put in front of you, even if it's just to add a couple of cans or a couple of cases or a grab-and-go pack, you know, to your own food storage. 30% discount, free shipping, no sales tax. Use the coupon code HIDE at checkout. Just click on the link for life-saving food Com. It's in my show notes. All right, people still talk about things like individual liberty and the rule of law, but have you noticed how the slogans we use now seem to be lacking credibility? For instance, uh, Roger Kimball has a great article here explaining the freedom facade and how we've come untethered from reality. He says, I've been looking back over Alexis de Tocqueville's unfinished masterpiece, The Old Regime and the French Revolution. And he says it's full of piquant observations. For example, this from the end of the preface, quote, A man's admiration of absolute government is proportionate to the contempt he feels for those around him. End quote. Holy cow, that is so on target. How much contempt do you suppose emanates from the apparatchiks who inhabit the D.C. swamp and control our lives? How slavish is their devotion to the unfettered prerogatives of the idol they serve? The state. Roger Kimball says the dialectic, or that dialectic, between adulation of the sources of power and contempt for those subject to it, may in one sense be perennial. A sentiment captained by, captured by the old Latin tag, proprium humani ingenii est odisquem les, les, laersis. Sorry, not a, not a, not very fluent in Latin, am I? But what it means is, it is part of human nature to hate those whom you have injured. Well, it seems to make sense. But Tocqueville translated that psychological characteristic into the realm of politics in which the question of liberty is paramount. Like Edmund Burke, Tocqueville was a supreme anatomist of the ways in which power co-opts the passion for liberty in order to counterfeit liberty's essence. Describing the habit of governmental paternalism, 
Tocqueville noted that almost all the rulers who have tried to destroy freedom have at first attempted to preserve its forms. Quote, this has been seen from Augustus down to our own day. Rulers flatter themselves that they combine the moral strength given by public consent with the advantages that only absolute power can give. Almost all have failed in the enterprise and have soon discovered that it is impossible to make the appearance of freedom last where it is no longer a reality. End quote. Roger Kimball says, I think that's more or less where we are now. You still hear people talk about the importance of individual liberty, the rule of law, limited government, and so on. But he says, increasingly, I believe these slogans are shot through with a brittle cynicism. He says, one of those, one sign of that decadence is the resignation that now greets every fresh assault upon the impartiality upon which the rule of law and hence liberty depend. In a recent column for the Daily Signal, Larry Elder asks, why hasn't Juicy Smollett been charged with perjury? Well, it's a good question, and it's one everyone knows the answer to. Smollett belongs to a protected class. Actually, he belongs to several protected classes. As a black, gay celebrity, that is, celebrity for some, like Larry Larry Elder, he says, I'd never heard of him till he ran afoul of the law, Smollett is more or less untouchable. Now, true, he was just convicted of five out of six felony counts for staging his own assault. But many commentators are speculating that he will serve no jail time for committing what can only be described as a racially motivated hate crime. I think the worst thing is, uh, you know, at least at least he knows that uh, his his uh, his attacker has been, you know, convicted. Right. <laughs> Sorry. I won't gloat. Or consider Kevin Kleinsmith. That's the FBI lawyer who in 2017 helped get the Russian collusion delusion going by altering a CIA email regarding Carter Page, one of the many pro-Trump figures who was harassed by the Justice Department. The CIA had identified Page as a CIA source. Kleinsmith, part of the anti-Trump team that staffs the upper reaches of the FBI, changed the email to say that Page was not a CIA asset. This gave the green light for the Bureau to obtain a warrant from the FISA court to spy on Page and threw him on the entire Trump administration. So remember what happened to Mike Flynn? He was set up by the FBI, then lost his job as National Security Advisor and was bankrupted trying to defend himself. What happened to Kevin Kleinsmith? Well, in 2020, he pleaded guilty to doctoring the email and was sentenced to, are you ready? 12 months probation. Now, what Kleinsmith did altering an official document in order to get a warrant to spy on an American citizen so the FBI could secretly surveil the Trump administration, that's a felony. Usually a lawyer who's convicted of a felony is disbarred. Kleinsmith got probation. Compare that to the multi-year prison sentences being meted out to several of the 700 people arrested for protesting at the Capitol on January 6th of 2021. As Julie Kelly's reported in scarifying detail, scores have been moldering in a D.C. political gulag for months, many in solitary confinement. And according to a story in Just the News, five months after Kleinsmith initially pleaded guilty, the D.C. bar temporarily suspended his license pending a review and hearing. Well, that review was completed in September, and Kleinsmith has been reinstated as an active member in good standing. It's nice work if you can get it. And if you're part of the nomenclatura that uh, rules the country, you can be sure of getting it. Still, Roger Kimball says there's a a small silver lining to this this tale of corruption. 
Kleinsmith was also a member of the Michigan Bar, which automatically suspended him and imposed a small fine when he pleaded guilty. Now, the Michigan Tribunal was considerably more forthright about Kleinsmith's actions than the D.C. Bar or the media, which treated the story with a big yawn. Kleinsmith's behavior, they said, was contrary to justice, ethics, honesty, or good morals, violated the standards or rules of professional conduct adopted by the Supreme Court, and violated a criminal law of the United States. Roger Kimball says, yes, but is anyone paying attention? So to repeat Tocqueville's warning, it is impossible to make the appearance of freedom last where it is no longer a reality. I'd have to say he's right on the money. Got to shift gears here. You know, as wrong thinkers, you and I tend to be less concerned with the approval of the crowd. But even so, it's really sobering to consider what is considered main, mainstream thought today. Now, J.B. Shirk, writing for uh, AmericanThinker.com, has an excellent essay on what you must believe as an America in 2021. This one's a little bit sobering, but I thought it was worth sharing with you. J.B. Shirk says, as far as I can tell, this is what we're now supposed to believe as Americans in the first year of the glorious state's deep, I'm sorry, the glorious deep state's blessed and eternal reign. We are supposed to believe our country is so irredeemably racist that people of all races keep sneaking into the United States at breakneck speeds. Our military is so well prepared for the future threats from China and Russia that it can dedicate its resources to spreading transgenderism through its ranks, pontificating about white rage at book clubs, firing service members for not vaxxing up, and challenging climate change to bouts of fisticuffs. Okay. He says, our border is so secure that we have time to worry about Ukraine's. China is so worrisome a global adversary that our political and business elites continue to transfer American wealth and manufacturing capabilities to its shores. Russia is so much of a geopolitical foe that our government's weather warriors have chosen to kill America's domestic energy production and increase Russia's leverage over the world's supply of oil and natural gas. And Iran, which continues to promise death to Israel, must be coddled and rewarded before it hurts our friends. Also, we're expected to believe that a global pandemic caused by a virus most likely created in a Chinese lab with the assistance of U.S. government funds still must be treated as if it just magically appeared. It poses so little threat to young people that their lives must be turned upside down. Masks were useless until they became mandatory to prove loyalty to the state. The virus should be regarded as if it were so deadly that the only way to survive is to get pumped full of experimental vaccines. At the same time, encouraging lawless mass migration and actively resettling untreated illegal aliens all around the country, well, that's not dangerous at all. Yeah, it's pretty heavy on sarcasm, but I haven't seen anything that J.B. Shirk is saying here that uh, doesn't ring true. Tell you what, we'll pick up on it here on the other side of the break. Please stay with us, and if you'd like... Feel free to subscribe to my show notes. Just go to thebrianhydeshow.com, click the subscribe button. I'll email them to you every time I do the program. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. You know, maybe it's just because... Maybe it's just because I'm getting this out of my system. I feel like I'm on a little bit of a tear today. But I'm really enjoying this article by J.B. Shirk about what you must believe as an American in 2021. And I think he pretty accurately taps into some of the mental gymnastics that we are being required to engage in in order to, uh, you know, remain within the mainstream where it's safe. (laughs) Well, you can probably start to understand why I really don't have any desire to remain within the mainstream especially for some of the things that we are expected to believe. This is part of the narrative, and heaven help you if you question this. You know, we have algorithms that will weed you out. We have fact checkers that will weed you out. Let me give you a couple more examples here. Again, courtesy of J.B. Shirk, writing for AmericanThinker.com. He says, what you must believe as an American in 2021 includes that the vaccines, which are touted as medical miracles, Actually, let me go back. They are the solution. That's what we're being told. Now, he does point out that these vaccines have killed and injured tens of thousands and left others with a higher risk of mortality generally. But they're being sold as having saved humanity from imminent extinction. And strangely, he says uh, more people have died from the virus this year than before the gene therapy cocktails became widely available. Though they're still routinely extolled as conferring immunity, they apparently become useless if anyone on the planet refuses to be forcibly jabbed. Purely coincidentally, vaccinated professional athletes around the globe rather continue to collapse on the pitches and playing fields with severe chest pains. Still, government scientists insist that the only answer to failure is to keep jabbing. And after two years of flattening the curve, blue cities and states have regressed back to mandatory masking as a show of confidence in the effectiveness of these wondrous pharmaceutical elixirs. 20 years to flatten the curve, $20 trillion in pharmaceutical profits. Progress! Now he says, even though global oligarchs such as Klaus Schwab, Bill Gates, and George Soros immediately used the global pandemic to push a great reset, of society that's expanded the control and power of government over each individual, they claim that this health emergency is an expedient pretext for conditioning people to accept a new techno-fascist fascist normal. And that's just, and anybody who believes that you know that's that's what they're up to, well, that's just hogwash, right? It's pure happenstance that the middle class wealth has been drained these past two years, while the one percent of the one percent has never been richer. People who refuse to understand that state-backed police must occasionally bash their skulls for their own health when caught protesting lockdowns. Well, those people are just too selfish to comprehend that imprisonment in quarantine concentration camps is for their own good. By the way, he's linking to every single thing he's claiming here. There are stories that he can back up and show you this is actually happening. This is not just pulled out of his imagination or out of thin air. In order to save lives, governments must deny hospital care and food access for the unvaxxed. In order to increase health care capacities, governments must fire doctors and nurses who are unvaxxed. In order to prove the efficacy of experimental vaccines, no other common-sense therapeutic treatments must be allowed to succeed. To trust in science, you must put your faith in big government. Only Pfizer can set you free. To save democracy, we must murder freedom. The religiously devout must seek and receive the government's blessing before gathering to pray. 
Those who wish to protest against the government must first obtain permission. Those who write and publish must make sure to avoid saying anything hateful. Everything hateful will be determined by the government in due time. The government may engage in outright censorship so long as it outsources its work to Google, Facebook, and Twitter. Discussion of any subject dealing with viral pandemics must be monitored for compliance with official state doctrine. Misinformation should be considered a viral pandemic that causes unacceptable harm. So for this reason, all communication must be monitored for compliance with official state doctrine, too. What you could say yesterday, you might not be able to say tomorrow. What you say tomorrow may certainly be outlawed the day after that, just as COVID will require endless booster shots for for an obedient people. COVID-1984's defenestration of the First Amendment will require endless booster shots for a subjugated people as well. Free speech can only be as free as it concurs verbatim with government decree. It's perfectly permissible to demonize all white people as racists. This is another thing you have to be able to believe as an American in 2021. Whenever any non-white person is injured or killed by law enforcement, racism should be assumed to have been the underlying cause. Before any facts are ascertained, it is proper for Black Lives Matter and Antifa to seek extra-legal revenge. Any person who has property should permit this property to be destroyed in the name of social justice. Any person whose life is threatened by the mayhem should accept death rather than the white supremacy of self-defense. Businesses that respond to mass looting by closing their stores or boarding up their windows are only perpetuating prejudice. In order to liberate America from systemic racism, black neighborhoods must be burned to the ground. Voting rights and civil rights protests are strongly encouraged by the federal government. Disobedience campaigns are quintessentially American, except for any protests in response to the numerous unresolved discrepancies that tarnished the 2020 presidential election. Fighting for free and fair elections is important for democracy, but only when the right sorts of people are first chosen by the oligarchy for the people to democratically elect. Known liar and serial lawbreaker Hillary Clinton? Oh, yes. Known liar and corrupt quid pro quo extraordinaire Joe Biden? Yes, please. A self-made billionaire and independent outsider who promises to drain the swamp? Well, send him and his MAGA supporters straight to the gulag for the sake of the deep state's preservation. J.B. Shirk says to save America, we must torment and harass torment and harass any who would dare suggest we make America great. Five years in prison, solitary confinement, and torture for anyone who persists. We must persecute and punish people for their political beliefs to prove to the world that America remains a beacon for liberty. Only by accepting the denizens of D.C. as our rightful rulers can the dissidents in flyover country learn to be thankful for what freedoms they've been allowed to retain. As long as every American obeys, then democracy functions perfectly. Soon we too shall be lucky enough to have elections where D.C.'s puppet president receives 90% of the vote. Why should only China's, Russia's, or North Korea's political leaders be so popular? Apparently the American regime in power plans on commemorating the events of January 6th so the country can remember annually how Washington destroyed the working class voter with ease. And for people who routinely celebrate their abortions, it makes sense for them to celebrate aborting freedom, too, with such a grand spectacle. Remember, comrades, unity. We shall have it 
or suffer the consequences until we do. Okay, I'll grant it. It's it's, it's a tad uh, dramatic, but his point is well taken. These are the things we are supposed to believe regarding, you know, life in 2021. I don't know about you, but I'm I'm tired. I'm tired of marching to anybody's political lockstep. And, you know, with apologies to my Republican friends, I know there are a lot of you out there who are actually doing the best work you can to use your influence to slow that uh, that role of Leviathan, trying to, to beat back the regulatory state and all the, the soul-crushing um, policies that are being foisted on us. But I think I've reached the point where my confidence in politics being able to solve these problems is just about nil. I'm much more interested in actually putting much more of my time, effort, and energy into pursuing parallel institutions that are not tied up in the politics of the current uh, rotting structure that we're just waiting to see come tumbling down. And I'm not saying that because I want to see the world burn. I just, I don't see how it can keep going. I think the rot is complete. It's like if you had a house with a leaky faucet and for years and years that faucet in the kitchen was leaking and leaking. And so, yeah, you know, at some point, well, we put a new washer in there and the leak has stopped. We're good to go. But what if the damage has been going on for so long that it's actually rotted the structure of the house? What if you no longer have structural integrity because it was allowed to go on for so long? I honestly think that's where we are right now with many of the systems that are trying to rule our lives. Now, I know it's scary for people to think, well, gee, what would we do without them? I mean, without them, it would be anarchy. No, it wouldn't. It would be people voluntarily coming together to solve problems instead of being coerced under partisan considerations, which really come down to, look, our side won, we get to punish them. Is that not how most elections go these days? I mean, it sure feels like it. Ever since about, oh, I don't know, January of this year. Just as a for instance. All right. Rant over. Thanks again for joining us. Please check out the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show. trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome to the show. This is a place where wrong thinkers can gather to examine and assess information for themselves. Please understand there is no implied necessity that you have to believe whatever you hear or whatever I, you know, share with you on this program. Now, I would I would love it if you would consider it, but ultimately what you do with that information is up to you. And this is as it should be. I certainly don't have the answers. I am merely a humble truth seeker who is out there doing my best to find the best information that I can, and then through a laborious process, I do what I can to convert it into truth and light, which is broadcast to you via a number of wonderful uh, platforms throughout uh, the week. 
So I thank you for finding this program. I would encourage you, please consider becoming a subscriber. And and by all means, please support my sponsors who help make this possible. Govern Your Income, Sewing Quilting Center, um, also uh, HSL Ammo, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah, Life Saving Food, and MonticelloCollege.org. You know, to illustrate the depth of the scientific divide over COVID lockdowns and vaccines, first of all, you have to consider, well, there are those saying there is no disagreement. The science has spoken. Well, that's pretty antithetical. Science does not declare itself, you know, infallible. Science does not declare itself above questioning. Now, politicized scientists, I could definitely see doing that, but no, actual science is all about asking questions. But to illustrate the depth of this divide, I would invite you to take a closer look at uh, Dr. Fauci, emails, and some alleged science regarding the Great Barrington Declaration. Philip W. Magnus and James Harrington from the American Institute for Economic Research have provided some very eye-opening evidence regarding how far the powers that be are willing to go to silence dissenters. Their article says, from October 2nd to October 4th of 2020, the American Institute for Economic Research hosted a small conference for scientists to discuss the COVID-19 lockdowns. Just four days later, Dr. Francis Collins, the retiring director of the National Institutes of Health, would call three of the scientists in attendance fringe epidemiologists in a directive he sent to Anthony Fauci and other senior staff of his agency. They were fringe epidemiologists because they had the temerity to ask whether the lockdowns of 2020 were effective. Now, those three doctors were Dr. Martin Koldorf of Harvard, Dr. Sunetra Gupta of Oxford, and Dr. Jay Bhattacharya of Stanford. Simply doing what any good scientist would do, they were following the evidence. Now, they wrote the Great Barrington Declaration as they parted company at American Institute for Economic Research, posting it for all to see. So why was Dr. Collins so intent on impugning these three scientists? Well, it's hard to know exactly, mostly because any scientist worth his salt should have been happy to see further research being done. I mean, that is, after all, how ignorance is replaced by knowledge. But Francis Collins was in no mood to replace his own possible ignorance with any kind of knowledge. He was pretty sure he knew all he had to know, and this is one of the most dangerous positions a scientist can take. In an email obtained by AIER through a Freedom of Information Act request, Collins told Anthony Fauci, CCing Lawrence Tabak, Deputy Ethics Counsel at the National Institutes of Health, that he wanted, quote, a quick and devastating published takedown of the Great Barrington Declaration's premises. This is the entirety of the email. Hi, Tony and Cliff. CGBDeclaration.org. This proposal from the three fringe epidemiologists who met with the secretary seems to be getting a lot of attention, even a co-signature from Nobel Prize winner Mike Levitt at Stanford. There needs to be a quick and devastating published takedown of its premises. I don't see anything like that online yet. Is it underway? Francis. Now, the article says one wonders why he would CC the deputy ethics counselor on this given the trouble these people seem to have with ethics. But here they were in October of 2020. Fauci wrote that same night to let Collins know there was already a devastating takedown of the Great Barrington Declaration in that August scientific publication, Wired. Francis Fauci wrote, I am pasting in below a piece from Wired that debunks 
the GBD. Their science reporter, Matt Reynolds, told us there was no scientific divide over herd immunity, but that's not the funny part. The funny part came when Reynolds declared quite confidently that we no longer had anything to worry about, as lockdowns were, of October, as of October 2020, a thing of the past. The problem with the Great Barrington Declaration is that we aren't in lockdown, Reynolds explained. It's hard to find people who are advocating for a return to the lockdown we saw in March. When the Great Barrington Declaration authors declare their opposition to lockdowns, they are quite literally arguing with the past. Now, this Fauci-endorsed passage may be one of the worst takes of the entire pandemic. Less than a month later, lockdowns came roaring back with a vengeance. Fauci wrote to Collins again the next day, this time referencing a breathless op-ed by Greg Gonsalves, a public health professor at Yale in The Nation. And here we arrive at yet another funny part. Gonsalves' article was not exactly a critique of the Great Barrington Declaration. Instead, Gonsalves went after Martin Koldorf, who in an interview with the leftist magazine Jacobin, quite reasonably pointed out that the lockdowns hurt the poor more than most talking heads were willing to admit. Gonsalves' grievance was that by interviewing Koldorf, Jacobin had broken the lockdown solidarity of other far-left websites, including The Nation and The Boston Review. By October 10th, the lines were well-drawn, and Fauci thrust himself into the middle of the media hootenanny that was clearly emerging. Collins emailed again to boast about calling the three scientists fringe in the Washington Post, although he told Fauci that their ongoing campaign to take down the Great Barrington Declaration will not be appreciated in the White House. The White House, Fauci retorted, was too busy with other things to worry about the Great Barrington Declaration. There was an election to deal with, after all. Now, as the bedfellows became more strange, Greg Gonsalves wrote directly to Collins, thanking him for his undiplomatic approach. For his part, Gonsalves became ever more hostile and profane in his remarks on the Great Barrington Declaration. This effing Great Barrington Declaration is like a bad rash that won't go away, Gonsalves tweeted shortly before reaching out to Collins. A day earlier, the Yale professor also began promoting unhinged conspiracy theories about the Great Barrington Declaration and A-I-E-R, that traced to the blog of a former 9-11 truther movement activist. Now, some of the emails between between Collins and Fauci sent in response to A-I-E-R's Freedom of Information Act request have been redacted, but the surrounding context makes it pretty clear. They were looking for a way to impugn the Great Barrington Declaration further if it came up at the White House COVID task force meeting on October 16th. That morning, Fauci emailed Deborah Burks, the White House corona resp- Coronavirus Response Coordinator, and he pressed the need for her to oppose the Great Barrington Declaration and set the stage for an attack on Scott Atlas, who was the most friendly champion of the Great Barrington Declaration on the task force. Fauci, it turns out, had to miss the October 16th task force meeting, though he likely breathed a sigh of relief when Collins emailed him two days later, quote, Atlas did not take part in the task force meeting on Friday, and the Great Barrington Declaration did not come up. Another partially redacted email hints that Fauci celebrated this outcome. Atlas's opposition to the lockdown faction on the task force is driving Deb Burks crazy, he continued. But Fauci and Collins were not done in their campaign to take down the GBD scientists. The article here from Phil Magnus and James Harrington says, Our story picks up again in earnest on November 2nd. 
when Fauci's chief of staff, Greg Folkers, replied to an email that was not made public in pursuance to AIER's Freedom of Information Act request. It seems pretty clear, though, that Fauci asked Folkers for a list of sources that would allow him to argue effectively against the Great Barrington Declaration. The email subject line references a previous correspondence from Fauci, Fauci rather, as discussed, noting that Folkers had highlighted the three I found most useful. Multiple sources, and particularly Scott Atlas's recently published account of his time on the task force, have noted that Fauci often relies on aides to curate lists of sources in advance of his many media appearances. He seldom reads the scientific literature on COVID-19 himself and instead arrives at meetings with staff-prepared talking points. It appears Folker's email was an answer to one such request for talking points to attack the Great Barrington Declaration scientists. Note that Fauci frequently portrays himself as a staunch defender of science who stays above the political divide and remains outside of partisan debates. Well, in light of that, you might expect that Folker's response to Fauci's request would yield a small sample of scientific analysis on the logic behind the lockdowns, even if only in a bullet or a format bullet pointed by his staff. But you'd be wrong. Folker sent Fauci a list of seven political op-eds and articles opposing the Great Barrington Declaration from popular media outlets. So, yeah, science. Got a link to this in the show notes. Well worth your time to read it and follow the links within the story. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just a quick shout-out here going out to my friends at Sewing and Quilting Center located in St. George, Utah. This is an amazing business in that it was actually started back in 1984 by Ken Harker. It's only changed owners twice. Current owner is Teresa Alsop along with her husband, Eric Alsop. And this uh, this is the place to go if you or someone you love love sewing or wants to become skilled in sewing. You can pick up uh, brother sewing and embroidery machines, baby lock sergers, embroidery and sewing machines, and also handy quilter long-arm quilting machines. I know, for me, it's kind of like I don't know much of those terms, but I do have family members who are very much into sewing and quilting, and their eyes light up when they hear those names. Oh, they recognize. These are some of the top brands in quilting and sewing machines. And here's the cool thing about this. Ken Harker still fixes machines for the business. But if you want to buy machines, you want to buy thread, you want to buy fabric, you want to get trained in how to use them, you need somebody to, to fix your machine, Sewing and Quilting Center at St. George, Utah is the place. There's a link in my show notes. Please check them out for yourself. Moving on in the show here, let's talk a little bit about how a lot of public health experts right now are acting like they can control a virus. Got a great article here from Jordan Schachtel which uh, says, in reality, these experts in government and academia are exposing themselves as clueless charlatans who more than anything just want to control the rest of us. Now listen to what he has to say. He says, there's one thing that the public health expert class is certain about these days. They have the tools to stop this coronavirus. And he links here to a a clip from ABC's... uh, 
uh, George Stephanopoulos show with with Dr. Anthony Fauci. Stephanopoulos asks him, you must be exhausted yourself. What signs of hope can you point to in this holiday season? Dr. Fauci says, we have the tools to protect ourselves, and that's the thing we keep saying over and over again. Now, to back this up, Governor Kathy Hochul, I think I'm saying her name right, the governor of New York. Here's where we're at, New York. The COVID-19 winter surge is in full force, but I'm confident we will overcome this. We are not defenseless. We have the tools to fight this virus. And then here's a tweet from uh, Ashish K. Jha, medical doctor. There are four tools to tame the pandemic. Number one, vaccines. Number two, rapid tests. Number three, improving indoor air. Number four, masks. If we deploy the first three aggressively and smartly, we don't. We need only use the fourth sparingly and safely do essentially everything we value. We have all the tools we need to end this pandemic. Starting to see a pattern here, right? Oh, here's one more. This is from Eric Topol. We will soon have all the tools needed to end the pandemic if only we had them and were fully used. Vaccines, masks plus mitigation measures, distancing, ventilation, etc., Pill, that would be the MPAC and monoclonal abs as backup. And rapid tests, more important than ever, with a pill. Now, Jordan Schachtel says, look, the thing about these tools, in quotation marks, tools, is that they require blind faith in order to work. Since every observable metric shows all of those tools have failed in catastrophic fashion. He links to another picture here. This is from Yahoo. Omicron, the good news is that we have the tools, doctor says. And there's a picture of a lady getting the swab shoved up her nose. Jordan Schachtel says, look, it's time to acknowledge some strikingly clear realities about COVID mania. We are now almost two full years into our population-wide public health expert-managed COVID tyranny. And it has not exactly paid dividends for anyone other than the people in charge who've catapulted to a life of fame and prestige. There's no evidence anywhere in the world that top-down authoritarianism, guided by these excessively praised public health experts, has produced positive outcomes for the health and safety of any nation. In fact, the opposite is true. Throughout the world, sickness and unhealthy habits are increasing across the board, both indirectly and directly related to COVID-19. By the way, Phil Magnus's name pops up here again, too, and it well should. Phil is an absolutely brilliant researcher, and he shows, you know, how confirmed cases of COVID-19 in New York, Massachusetts, Connecticut, and Rhode Island follow the exact pattern, no matter what policies they adopt. It's like the virus just runs the fairly predictable course through society. Now, Jordan Schachtel says, according to all observable metrics, the promised cures and mitigation and suppression strategies are not working as advertised. In fact, most of these tools, when employed, are making everything worse. Case in point, here's a tweet from the Charlotte Observer. Cornell University, where 97% of campus is fully vaccinated, is experiencing an outbreak of COVID-19 cases. Now, Schachtel says, look, the mRNA shots were originally sold to the public with the claim that they prevent people from both infecting others and being infected with the virus that causes COVID-19. This is why the FDA and CDC, among other public health bureaucracies, decided to green light injecting unthreatened five-year-olds with experimental drugs. 
The promise was that they would be doing their part to save grandma and stop the spread. Yet the prevention and transmission claim has been completely memory-holed. As evidenced uh, most recently by the breakouts in universally compliant settings, after a period of time, the shots seem to do nothing at all to prevent infection or transmission. And by the way, he backs this up with video clips of Bill Gates talking about how we'd be doing our part to, to you know, prevent the spread or the transmission of, of this disease. Nope. Here's Joe Biden. You're not going to get COVID if you have these vaccinations. That was from July of this year. Universal masking, another agreed-upon tool to stop a virus, doesn't work. Yet the experts continue to swear by the act of securing a dirty rag to your face. And here's a nice chart illustrating. Back in August, two experts said Denmark proved that high vaccination rates could end surges and squash variants. Well, last month, Denmark imposed vaccine passports, yet with 96% of adults fully vaccinated, their cases have skyrocketed to all-time highs. The experts, trademark, have nailed it again. Jordan Schachtel says, look, curfews and lockdowns, a tool first popularized by the Chinese Communist Party, have done absolutely nothing to solve a virus problem. Of course, the ruling class has taken to quadrupling down on these measures. On January 1st of 2020, if you'd asked anyone about the modern history of pandemics, it would have been well understood that locking down and quarantining an entire population was an unscientific act of total barbarism and a policy measure that was best reserved for the dark ages. Oh, wait, look, here's a, here's a tweet from uh, uh, just last week. Just in, Ireland imposes an 8 p.m. curfew for hospitality and 50% capacity limits on events. Oh, boy. <laughs> and mass asymptomatic temp testing has only prolonged this pandemic of stupidity and manifested a very rich industry. The COVID-19 testing industrial complex in the U.S. is completely out of control and the American taxpayer has been drafted into churning out hundreds of millions of dollars per day to keep it afloat. This continually growing behemoth, which was spawned in 2020 because of the urgent insistence of select powerful members of the U.S. public health complex, is becoming a $100, $100 billion a year industry. And let's take on that term, public health expert. The idea that someone could even be a public health expert should be met with great suspicion, but governments across the world have put these people in charge of our entire civilization. Jordan Schachtel says, look, the public health expert class has no idea how to stop people from getting sick, yet they continue to claim that there are obvious tools to stop a virus. He says these frauds and charlatans used to be relegated rather, to publishing their annual quota of useless academic papers that nobody read. Now their theoretical models and hypotheses have been put to test via government force, and they have failed to an incredible degree. I'm going to have a link to this article. I would encourage you maybe subscribe to uh, Jordan Schachtel's uh, Substack. The guy has a pretty good slant on what's going on around us. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. 
You know, the people in the systems that want to rule us are working overtime, not only to try to accomplish that goal, but one of the things they spend a lot of time and effort doing is trying to convince us, hey, we're just responding to what you actually want. I used to see this a lot. This was uh, uh, when I lived in St. George, Utah. Uh, code enforcement was becoming a real problem in that uh, the city would send out code enforcement officers, you know, by the droves to, to make sure that we're doing the broken windows approach. If if somebody's grass is too high or somebody has, you know, a car sitting in their driveway and it's not registered, my goodness, we're going we're gonna to bring that to an end. And when people would complain and say, you are destroying people's private property rights. Usually the people in power would say, well, you know, this is what the public wants. This is what you want us to do. People want their property to be, you know, protected, their values to be protected. There's a degree of truth to that, but it doesn't, uh, it still doesn't pass the sniff test of, is that a legitimate function of proper government? It's more along the lines of the people deserve what they want. They should get it good and hard. And they did and still do to some degrees. So I found a great article here from Paul Rosenberg warning us not to believe the people in the systems who are trying to convince us that, hey, 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 you need us to tell you what to do. In fact, he says, we would be so much better off without them. Now, he says there are millions of people, a majority in many places, who believe in a liberty philosophy, which is basically that the golden rule is the right way for humans to interact that centralization of power is a problem and that leaving markets alone is better than rigging them and so on. But he says there is a problem here. Rather than pushing forward into action, most of these well-intentioned people limp along in uncertainty. He says there are some explanations for this, of course, but the root is probably a fear that rulers have some kind of magic. We fear that without them we'd crash and burn. After all, we've been trained in precisely that for a hundred generations. Rationally, we know it's not true. But emotionally, we're not entirely convinced. So he says, today I'd like to make an important point. That we'll be better off, massively better off, without them. The nagging fear that we're missing something is simply false. The better we get away from rulership, the better off we'll be. I'm going to pause here for a moment and just ask, does that Make you feel uncomfortable to hear words like that? What do you mean? The further away we get from rulership, the better off we're going to be? So if you're feeling a little bit of discomfort, let me go ahead and just uh, let me push that into full-blown discomfort. You and I have heard the term anarchy, and it's usually in, oh, we don't want anarchy. That's, that's scary. At its heart, though, The term anarchy does not describe lack of rules. There are no rules. It's every man for himself. It's the law of the jungle. That's the scary definition that is attached to this, but it's not an accurate definition. Anarchy simply means without ruler, as in you don't need someone to rule your life and tell you when to stand up, when to sit down, when to ask for cookies, when to beg. You don't need that. And people will spontaneously and voluntarily organize themselves as needed to solve problems. But again, it makes people terribly uncomfortable to think, oh, everybody will just go crazy. And I have to wonder, are they projecting their own inner fears on everybody else? I mean, would you go crazy? Would you start murdering people and raping and pillaging if 
for some reason there was a breakdown in, in law and order in society? I seriously doubt you would. And the reason that you wouldn't is because you are capable of self-governing. And I'm capable of self-governing. So let's not pretend that uh, lack of a ruler means, boy, we just spiraled out of control. Here's what Paul Rosenberg says about the numbers. He says, I like crunching numbers on these things because the failure of rulership is hidden in plain sight, little recognized. But digging into the numbers the rulers themselves publish can help you break through the the blockage. rather. So, in the U.S., the social safety net costs at least $2.5 trillion per year. If you add up the federal program, $717 billion back in 2010 and more now, the state programs, $210 billion in 2010, Medicare and Social Security, $1.3 trillion and perhaps a few smaller items. I think this article was written back in 2019, so those costs may be higher now. That's what it comes to, $2.5 trillion per year as of the time he wrote this. Now, here's what you should know. That annual spending equates to 7 million new houses, plus feeding 100 million families, plus providing health care for 100 million families. The second year, we could build another 7 million houses, as well as feeding and doctoring almost everyone in the country again. And he says, if you have a nagging feeling that these numbers can't be right, then he says, please find them and run them for yourself. It's not that hard to do, and it's likely to help you a great deal. So now he says, let's look at the uh, keep us safe expenses. The U.S. military budget is $686 billion per year. The U.S. intelligence budget is close to $80 billion, probably more so. We'll call it $766 billion. Given 247 million adults and 127 million households in the U.S. with $766 billion, we could give each adult a .30-06 rifle with scope and gear, a thousand rounds of ammunition, training, and a bulletproof vest. And on top of that, we can add a mortar launcher, a case of 12 shells, training, and a sighting scope for each family the first year. The second year, we could provide a Stinger missile system to every 12th family. The third year, we could give a tank and training to each grouping of 100,000 people. The fourth year, I don't know. What else do we need? Now, again, he says, please run the numbers yourself. Maybe your numbers won't agree with mine. He says, I've used more of a national average on house prices, for example, which uh, may be lower than you're used to, but do it your way and see how it comes out. Maybe you'll only come up with money enough for 4 million free houses per year. But if so, please remember, that's 4 million free houses per year, plus food and doctors, and bear in mind that none of the numbers above include police departments. So what this means is that our superstitions are very expensive and that they're holding us down financially, badly. Paul Rosenberg says it's clear, glaringly obvious, that what the rulers do for us with our own money is being done horribly. He says, I once wrote a line about government sending our wealth down the twin sewers of welfare and warfare. I still think it was well said. None of us who's run a business or a household could survive operating so incredibly stupidly. Once we see this and accept that it's really true, we see that liberation from rulership is not just a liberty issue, it's a legitimate financial issue, and a big one. More than anything else, it's a moral and spiritual issue, but he says, I'm trying to stay on point. So for an increasing list of reasons, it behooves us to start building our better world, laying aside the fear that we're somehow missing some crucial ability. We aren't. 
That feeling is merely an old superstition. To act positively is to expand life. To remain frozen in place is to paralyze life. So he says, pick a spot and start acting. I think he's on to something here. And I would encourage you, look, look, don't necessarily think in terms of politics when it comes to where I should start taking action. Truth be told, there are lots of places where you can put your time, your effort, your energy that don't involve politics at all. If you are involved in your community, you're working within an institution that has real power to affect people's lives for the better. Do you volunteer within your church? There's another institution that has profound impact on community. What are you doing to build and solidify the the stability of your family? There's another institution. Now, some of the remaining institutions like, uh, oh, I don't know, business, that's one where, again, if you're willing to, to buck, you know, some of the regulatory directives coming down, you must have every employee jabbed. You know, you can still do a lot of good through business. There's a ton of businesses that do great things within their communities. Academia, media, yeah, they've, uh, they've kind of been uh, co-opted by, by the power centers. Although, I, I will put this out there, you know, part of what I do is help to create and support alternative media. Yeah, people can scoff, but it has never been easier for a person who has a message to get out there to to uh, create their own platform and to get that message out there. I still think the, the most important thing that any one of us can do before we get to, you know, too intent on changing the rest of the world is make sure that we've got our own... We've got our own house in order. Sorry, I, there, there was a rather pithy way of saying that that uh, really wasn't appropriate, so I, I self-censored. But get your own stuff together. As Jordan Peterson would tell you, make your own bed. And when you get your own life running smoothly, then it's time to start looking around you for people you can help. But first, let's bring that one improved unit, that's ourselves, forward and present that to society i don't know about you i've got a lot of work to do so i'm going to keep working on that but uh yeah not doing anything that is not an option this is the brian hyde show this is the brian hyde show all right, welcome back to the show. Got a couple of quick articles here. I'm, I'm only going to touch briefly on one of these because I want you to check it out for yourself. Uh, you know, going to college used to be the key to a brighter future. And unfortunately, a college degree just doesn't open the doors that it once used to. I don't know if you've ever wondered about this, but Peter Clark has a very compelling explanation of why college degrees are losing their value. This was uh, published on the America. I'm sorry, the Foundation for Economic Education website, fee.org. The subtitle here is "The Signaling Function of College Degrees May Have Been Distorted by the Phenomenon Known as Credential Inflation." I thought this was an interesting take. Peter Clark says the concept of inflation, that is the depreciation of purchasing power of a specific currency, 
applies to other goods besides money. Inflation is related to the law of supply and demand. As the supply of a commodity increases, the value decreases. Conversely, as the good becomes more scarce, the value of the commodity increases. Now, this same concept is also applicable to tangible items like vintage baseball cards and rare art. And these are rare commodities that cannot be authentically replicated and therefore command a high value on the market. On the other hand, mass-produced rookie cards and replications of Monet's work are plentiful. As a result, they yield little value on the market. Inflation and the opposite principle of deflation can also apply to intangible goods. So when you're looking at the job market, this becomes quite evident. Jobs that require skills that are rare or exceptional tend to pay higher wages. However, there are also compensating differentials that arise because of the risky or unattractive nature of undesirable jobs. The higher wages are due to a lack of workers willing to accept the position rather than the possession of skills that are in demand. Now, Peter Clark says, over the past couple of decades, credentialing of intangible employment value has become more prevalent. So credentials can range from college degrees to professional certifications. One of the most common forms of credentialing has become a four-year college degree. This category of human capital documentation has evolved to take on an alternate function. Now, outside of a few notable exceptions, a bachelor's degree serves as a signaling function. As George Mason economics professor Brian Kaplan argues, the function of a college degree is primarily to signal to potential employers that a job applicant has desirable characteristics. Earning a college degree is more of a validation process than a skill-building process. Employers desire workers that are not only intelligent, but also compliant and punctual. The premise of the signaling model seems to be validated by the fact that many graduates are not using their degrees. In fact, in 2013, only 27% of graduates had a job related to their major. Now, since since bachelor's degrees carry a significant signaling function, there's been a substantial increase in the number of job seekers possessing a four-year degree. Retention rates for four-year institutions reached an all-time high of 81% in 2017. In 1900, only 27,410 students earned a bachelor's degree. This number ballooned to 4.2 million by 1940 and has now increased to 99.5 million. Now, these numbers demonstrate the sharp increase in the number of Americans earning college degrees. Today, nearly 40% of all Americans hold a college degree, a four-year degree, that is. Considering the vast increase in college attendance and completion, it's fair to question if a college degree has retained its purchasing power on the job market. And the sad truth is much of the evidence seems to suggest that uh, it has not. So what is credential inflation? Well, the signaling function of college degrees may have been distorted by the phenomenon known as credential inflation, which is nothing more than an increase in the education credentials required for a job. Now, many jobs that previously required no more than a high school diploma are now only accepting applicants with a bachelor's degree. And this shift in credential preferences among employers has now made the four-year degree the unofficial minimum standard for educational requirements. This fact is embodied in the high rates of underemployment among college graduates. Approximately 41% of all recent graduates are working jobs that do not require a college degree. 
It's shocking when you consider that 17% of hotel clerks and 23.5% of amusement park attendants hold four-year degrees. None of these jobs have traditionally required a college degree. But due to a competitive job market where most applicants have degrees, many recent graduates have no means of distinguishing themselves from other potential employees. Thus, many recent graduates have no option but to accept low-paying jobs. Peter Clark points out the value of a college degree has gone down due to the vast increase in the number of workers who possess degrees. This form of debasement mimics the effect of printing more money. Following the law of supply and demand, the greater the quantity of a commodity, the lower the value. Now, the hordes of guidance counselors and parents urging kids to attend college have certainly contributed to the problem. However, public policy has served to amplify this issue. Various kinds of loan programs, government scholarships, and other programs have incentivized more students to pursue college degrees. And policies that make college more accessible, proposals for free college, for instance, also devalue degrees. More people attending college makes degrees even more common and further depreciated. Now, of course, this is not to say brilliant students with aspirations of a career in STEM fields should avoid college, but for the average student... A college degree may very well be a malinvestment and hinder their future. Incurring incurring large amounts of debt to work for minimum wage is not a wise decision. So when faced with policies and social pressure that have made college the norm, Peter Clark says students should recognize that a college degree isn't everything. If students focused more on obtaining marketable skills than on credentials they might find a way to stand out in a job market flooded with degrees. Now, thankfully, there are a lot of great alternatives out there. I think of Praxis, which is is a wonderful alternative, P-R-A-X-I-S, Praxis. You should really check it out for yourself. It's, it's good stuff. I think the trade schools and tech schools, another fantastic opportunity. But I do agree with the idea that uh, college degrees are losing their value. When when everybody is special, nobody is special. If I could quote from The Incredibles. <laughs> but I think there's truth to this. All right, one final note. I'm not going to share much of this. I'll just uh, give you a quick, uh, a quick preview. Tom Luongo, who is a regular contributor to uh, LouRockwell.com, one of my favorite resources for wrong thinkers, has an excellent piece called Finding Strength, along a post-COVID Fury Road. Now, I didn't watch Mad Max Fury Road, the 2015 film. Haven't seen it. I know it's very over the top. I think it was the flamethrowing guitar that tipped me off that, wow, this one might just be a little bit of a stretch. But here's the gist of what Tom Luongo is saying. He says the COVID-9-11 pandemic is over. With the failure of Omicron to capture the imaginations of only the most unimaginative midwits, The question now is, how do we move forward from here? And he says, while we may rejoice that the threat to life and limb from COVID-9-11 may be effectively over, there is still the threat in its name to our liberty and sanity from those who profit most from fear of the virus. He says, the aftershocks from COVID-9-11 will be with us for the foreseeable future. An entire generation has been scarred by this manufactured apocalypse, and there will be no going back to the way things were. 
We've been warned by so many for so long, and from investigative journalists to the rare honest politician to the filmmakers and artists who crafted stories for us to contemplate the lurking dangers of our deteriorated society. Conditions were ripe for those in power to take maximal advantage of the fear from COVID-9-11, and he says they did so enthusiastically. Now, he says the warnings were clear. There are toxic people out there who would rather destroy the world to hold on to their power than admit defeat. And NBC's Brian Williams actually kind of referenced this last week in his his sign-off from from doing news. Something about uh, they're willing to burn the house down with us in it just to maintain their power. So from here, Tom Luongo draws some parallels uh, with Mad Max Fury Road. And and it's it's a fun and interesting read. He's got uh, he's got a great way of turning a phrase, but he says, "Look, here's the key takeaway. Unlike the the characters in Fury Road, we know who broke the world." And he says, "This is what scares those people in power the most." And that's where we find the strength to stare them down and build our own ways forward. Because he says, if we don't start doing that now. If we don't stop pining for the world that was and accept the world that is, there is no hope of fixing anything. This is why I talk about, uh, you know, we should be more focused on building what comes next rather than reforming what was or trying to reclaim what was. I know that's a bitter reality to face. I do think it's a healthier way to approach things, though. This is The Brian Hyde Show.